Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. And last night I was just reading some articles, you know, looking for an introductory element for my sermon, full disclosure. But uh, I read an article by an ex-football player, and he was describing the most painful injuries that you could have while you play football. Well, I did play football, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> so this, in, this article is very interesting to me. I'm not sure how you get qualified to write an article on the most painful injuries that you could have in football. Like, you have to experience them all before you can write about it? I don't know. Anyway, it was interesting. Broken ribs came in at number eight. So, I don't know if you ever have a broken rib. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't, but... He said it can be incredibly painful. Your lungs push against your ribs uh, literally all the time. So when you breathe, when you talk, when you laugh, when you cough, imagine that. Just bones rubbing against each other. So that's pretty painful. Uh, All from, you know, one little broken rib. But at the top of the list, any guesses? Thigh, yes. Broken femur is at the top of the list. I just, I can't even imagine that. I don't know. He, he called it the worst of all possible bone fractures, and he gave a lot of gory details. I'm going to spare you of those. But uh, reading the article gave me a lot more empathy for a childhood friend of mine. He shattered his femur when he was on a ski trip with us, and I was actually on a chairlift as, I, as we were going up the hill, up the mountain, and I heard the crack. Yeah, it sounded almost, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but it sounded like a gunshot, like when he hit the, when he hit the tree. And uh, anyway, it definitely made an impact. <laughs> that was really bad. I, that wasn't even intended. <laughs> so anyway, my point in saying all that is that it's incredible how one Small, well, femur is not very small, it's pretty big, but uh, one broken bone or, or small injury or issue can be so de- detrimental to the effectiveness of the entire body. Imagine how crazy it would have been if my friend who, who shattered his femur would have said, well, it's just one bone. Like, no big deal. I mean, I've got I mean, 205 other ones. You know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm healthy. Do I really need to address my broken femur? Well, obviously nobody's going to say that. Even if it's one of your smallest broken ribs here. And why is that? It's because an injury like that is going to affect your entire body. The health of your body rides on the health of, of all of the members. So if your whole body's healthy, you're effective. But if you get injured or even get sick, you can go down quick, right? Well, we're going to see that to, that today that the same is true in the church. Every single one of you, every single member here at Timberlake is indispensable to the growth of the body. Indispensable. At your conversion, Christ has gifted you specifically and individually. And he expects you to grow to be useful to him and to the church. And today, Paul's going to teach us all about this. So if you're not already there, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. I didn't take my own advice, so I'm turning there now. Ephesians chapter 4. And last week we resumed our our study of the letter, so if you weren't here with us during the summer, it's okay. Uh, You didn't miss much, just last week. 
And if you did miss it, chapter 4 is really the start of the second half of the letter to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul wants us to get a glimpse of the glory of what Christ has done for us. We've, we've looked at that extensively last semester. He wants us to see who we are in Christ now, the implications of what it means to be saved by Him. And one of the last things that we saw in that study was that we're God's new unified humanity. Remember that from chapter 2? He's joined both Jew and Gentile together in Christ, and He's reconciled us both together and to God. We now represent God to the world, and unity with each other points to the unity that's coming in the new creation. We're kind of like a pointer to that, to that coming new creation unity that's happening. In chapter 4, Paul turns the corner in the letter. And he transitions from telling us what God has done for us to how should, we should respond to what God has done for us. Paul knows that if we really believe the truths in chapters 1 through 3, our lives are going to inevitably be transformed. God will use those truths to transform us. That's because the truth has implications for how we live. If it doesn't, we don't really believe it. But Paul also knows that we're still weak, that we need much help to connect the dots, right? I need help. We need Paul to equip us. We need him to help us see how our lives should change as a result of the truth that we believe. So we're calling this series, for the foreseeable future, New Creation Life. Because I want you to see these instructions in the back half of the letter as a, as a description for how the new humanity is supposed to live. How it's supposed to function. How it's supposed to work. Because that's what it is. This is how people who look and act like Christ live. We're progressively learning to live our lives in accordance with the reality of who we are in Christ. And last week, the very first thing Paul said was that we should live our lives humbly seeking to keep the unity... That Christ has accomplished. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that really governs all of the, the rest of this letter. We're to live our lives, we're to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if you want to summarize it, he's saying, look, first thing out of the gate is for you to walk in unity. Preserve the unity that Christ has already created. This one new man that he's, that he's created, preserve that. Walk in a way, live your life in a way that will preserve that unity. By being humble, um, being gentle, bearing with each other in love. He goes in verse 4, there's one body. Here's the reason. There's one body and one Spirit, just as... You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, or one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the reason that we're supposed to put unity as a top priority at the church, at Timberlake, in Boundless, is because it's what Christ has achieved. We're one body in Him. So we want to maintain that. We don't want to do things that will disrupt the unity of the church. So, that's, uh, that's, we're seeking to keep this unity that Christ has accomplished. And with this emphasis on unity, Paul doesn't want us to misunderstand what he's saying. 
All right, so he's just he's hit us hard with unity out front, but he doesn't want us to misunderstand his emphasis. It's true that all of us as Christians are profoundly unified in Christ, but here's the kicker: we are not all uniform. Right? We're unified, but we're not all exactly the same. We're incredibly diverse as the church, and that's by design. What Paul's going to teach us these next several weeks as we spend some time in these verses is that Christ has given each of us gifts of grace. He's given us unique abilities that he desires us to use in the life of the church. And in fact, Christ has actually designed the church in such a way to facilitate your growth in these ministry gifts. And when you grow in them and serve, the body actually gets more mature and more unified. That's the reality of what he's saying here in this text. This means if you're not vitally connected to us at Timberlake, and you're growing in your ministry, growing in usefulness to the body, our church is not as healthy as it could be. If you're a disconnected member, a spectator who's not connected, you're not growing, you're not serving, you're like a broken femur or broken rib. Our body is lacking. It's hurting because of your inactivity. So, we really need to lean in here, into this text, and see what Paul has to say for us. And it's, it's important, so we're going we're gonna to walk through it carefully over the next few weeks. And the text itself is, is complex, so I don't want to get lost in all of the minutiae and the details, but I want to try to pan out and help you see the message of, the, of this paragraph. It's pretty simple. Paul's still on this theme of unity, but he's talking about diversity within the unity. And he's basically showing us that Christ intends every single one of us to be vitally connected, growing, and serving in the church. So if you want a theme, that's what it is. Christ intends every single one of us to be vitally connected, growing, and serving in the church. Nobody left behind. Everybody connected. Everybody growing. Everybody serving. And we can summarize the argument in... in these three statements, which are going to be our outline moving forward. Do I have them up here? Oh, there's a broken femur for you. (laughs) Forgot I put that in there. For all you squeamish people. No, I didn't put the outline in there. All right. Just a femur, broken. (laughs) All right, here it is. Okay, you don't worry about writing it down because we're going to cover this ad nauseum. All right. Number one, Christ himself has given each of us a a grace for ministry. He's given each one of us a grace for ministry in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We'll unpack that. Okay? Number two. Okay, you say, well, man, what if I don't know how to use my gift? Or what if I'm immature? Or if I'm not growing? I've got all these issues in my life. That's okay. Because number two, Christ has given us leaders to help us grow in ministry and maturity. He's outfitted the body in that way to help us grow in those things. And number three, last, as we mature and minister through the ministry of those leaders, as we serve, Christ uses us to grow his church to maturity. See the stages? So he's given us a gift to be used. By the way, that's fulfillment of prophecy. Number two, what if I can't, what if I'm not... I'm insecure. I don't know. What my gifts are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he's giving you leaders to help you identify those things, work in those things, grow in those areas. 
And then number three, so you can be useful. And as you use those gifts, the church actually grows. So let's unpack Paul's argument one point at a time. Today we're only going to look at that very first statement. Christ himself, calling us gifted for growth, this, this next part two of this series of new creation life. So Christ himself has given each one of us grace for ministry. And then I added this as a little tagline on the end here, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, because it's incredibly important, uh, this text that Paul quotes here. Let's read, uh, picking up in verse 7. So he's focused on unity, verses 1 through 6, but, he says, grace was given to each one of us. See the particularity of that? According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, now he's quoting from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, now he explains this quote, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, or literally the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And that's really our first point, is that Christ himself has given each one of us grace for ministry in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So in this call to unity, as he opens chapter 4, he doesn't say we're to be uniform, all the same, but instead he says that God's given every single one of us in this room a particular gift or gifts. He says that he uses the term grace. So we'll just work this first part of the message as we're describing as gifted for ministry. Then we're going to unpack the Old Testament quote at the end. Gifted for ministry. And I'm just, to help us follow this text, I've woven some other things in here that I I think questions that we might ask. So I'm just going to list some questions out for you and seek to answer those questions as we move along. All right, so number one, first question I had is, what does grace mean here? Okay, so he says he's given each, given grace to each one of us. So he says grace. What does grace mean here? Well, Paul's using this language of grace, I think, for spiritual gifts, because he uses it that way in other letters. He uses other terms, but they're all, lots of the times they're, they're related either to the Spirit or to God's grace. And we could say it here as grace for ministry. If you want to put it that way, kind of a, a summary statement on it. Grace for ministry or grace gifts. These are specific gifts that are given to you by Christ that he expects you to use for the edification of the church. They're specific gifts given to you by Christ that he expects you to use for the edification of the church. And I'll post these notes, all right? I see a lot of you writing feverishly. That's good. I'm all about that. But I'll post these notes, so if you, if you get left behind, we've got a lot to cover, so if you get left behind, don't panic. You can download them, on, you can download them from the um, website. I would encourage you to do that, not because they're great. I mean, in fact, they're kind of kind of embarrassing when I put the notes out there because I don't really refine them. But it, it's good for you to go back and kind of jog the, the texts, and sometimes I'll put footnotes in those notes, so... All right, these are specific gifts given to you by the church that he expects you to use for the edification of the church. 
by Christ, I'm sorry, given to you by Christ that he expects you to use for the edification of the church. That's what grace means here, but why doesn't he just call them gifts? All right? Why does he call it grace? Well, he does, in verse 8, call them gifts. Notice there, it says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's our word, gift. But here, in verse 7, he calls it grace. So, why? Well, because your spiritual gifts are just that. It's grace. It's grace given to you. It's a manifestation of God's grace. There's something that didn't originate with you. In fact, nothing originated with you. Everything that you have is grace, right? But in particular, he's talking about these gifts that that God has given us at our conversion that are just manifestations of his grace toward us. He gave them to you freely. You can't brag about them, in other words. Any of your abilities to build any other Christian up is totally otherworldly. It's from Christ himself. However spectacular or radically mundane that gift is, it is from Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And it's a manifestation of his grace. That's pretty cool. But what exactly are these gifts? All right, what are they? Well, he gives a few examples in verse 11. But his purpose in these examples is not, to, is not to give us a smattering of examples. He's highlighting one set of gifts. Anyway, we'll get to that next week. But he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. But there, there itself is he gives a sampling of a, of a subset of gifts for the church. So I've listed those here, doing a little aside here, uh, of some of the gifts in Paul's letters. Apostleship is a gift, he says here. Prophecy is a gift. Evangelism is a gift. Shepherding is a gift. And teaching is a gift. All from this, this verse 11 here in chapter 4. He highlights those because they're word-based gifts, meaning they're, they're focused on the truth, because that helps equip the rest of us in, in the use of our gifts. It equips us for ministry. But we're going to get more on that next time. Paul doesn't give any other examples in our text other than that. But in other places in Scripture, Paul does give examples. Beyond those just mentioned are uh, faith, healing or miracles, discernment, helping or serving, administration or leading, exhortation, giving, mercy. I mean, there's there's... You can see it's kind of like a, a running list, and you can put etc. on the end of that. Because none of these lists are exhaustive. They're merely a smattering of things that came to Paul's spirit-inspired mind as he was writing these letters. Anything that edifies the church, anything that builds up the church, anything that's used to help other Christians grow, those are giftings by Christ toward you, and we're not all the same. There are almost endless ways to be used by God for the good of others. So this, again, just a smattering. We didn't even get into what they are, but uh, we could talk about that later, I guess. But I just wanted you to see that there's, there's stuff out there. Well, how do I know that I have a gift? How do I know that I have one? Well, notice in verse 7 that he says, Each one of us has been graced with a gift. Each one of us. 
Every one of you. No one's left out. No one's excluded. If you're a believer, that means you've been gifted. We're going to see these gifts were dispensed to us as a result of Christ's ascension and at our conversion. So we have them. It's part of your salvation package. This means you've been outfitted by Christ. You've been outfitted by Him to help the body grow. To help others. That means that you're indispensable to this body at Timberlake. If you remember here, you're indispensable. There's no mere spectators in body life. Everyone's designed to be an active participant. And if you're not actively participating, the church isn't as healthy as God intends it to be. You're a detriment to the health of the body. Well, that raises another question. Well, how do I figure out what gift that I have? Paul doesn't even list these gifts here, so how do I, how do I know? Well, if we, were to, if we were to pull back out and look at some other passages, I would not suggest taking a gift inventory. You'll never see that in Scripture. Not that they're like sinful or wrong. But you go online and taking a gift inventory is not the New Testament way to figure out where God has gifted you. All right? The New Testament way is to immerse yourself in meeting needs, the actual needs of a local church, of a local body, of, Tim- of Timberlake here, if you remember. And meeting those needs informally and formally. Informally and formally. So what do I mean by that? Well, informally... You should get involved in the lives of others in the body. You've got to be attentive to the needs of others. Find ways to meet those needs. Befriend someone. Get to know them. Seek to be an encouragement to them. Get involved in a small group with the purpose of helping and encouraging the people in that small group. Finding out what their needs are. Right after the main service, take some initiative. Go meet an older saint that looks like they could use some help. Befriend them. Get to know them a little bit. Then find a way to help them during the week. Is it going to be awkward? Yeah. But figure it out, right? You don't need somebody to to make that happen for you. Like, there's no... You don't need approval. Just go do it. You know? Like, be helpful to others in the body. And that's, that's what I mean by informally meeting the needs of others. And however that works for you. You might be a... You might be an exhorter. So you're going to say that older person, they, they're discouraged and down, and you're, you come alongside them and, and encourage them. You might be a helper, so you find leaves in their yard, and you're going to rake them up, you know, and they, whatever, whatever, it is that you, whatever it is that you're going to do that, that most suits your, your gifts or your desires. It's what you like to do. Think about this. How do you figure out what gift you have? When you envision loving others in the body, being useful to Christ, what excites you? So that's a good question. All right. So that's informal service. Formally, get involved in a ministry area. Get involved in a ministry area. And there's lots of them here. We've got ministry teams. You can see those online. They're service teams. They're headed out by different deacons and other ladies that just help us serve the church in a lot of various ways. Anything from IT to, um, I can't even think of them all right now, uh, Building and grounds. I mean, there's a number. There's a number of uh, teams that you could be involved in and use your use your skill sets to leverage for the church. Um, 
Children's ministry is often a great place to start for college students, and it's a current need that many of you are already meeting. I go down there with my own kids, and I see many of your faces in children's ministry, and it is a blessing. Um, there's lots of ways to get involved. My, that's the point. And, but the pathway to that, if you're new or just attending our church, is membership. So we're focused on new members, and we're, we're, um, or we're focused on the new members class, and we've announced that several times, but... The pathway is membership, to commit to our church and then to begin exercising your gifts here at Timberlake. So, pray to be used and find an area that, that needs you and seek to avail yourself in meeting that need and God will eventually help you see where he's gifted you. He'll help you see how you can be most useful to the body because God in his sovereignty will merge the needs of this church with you and he'll stretch you. You'll find others that are affirming you in your gifts. Or you may discover, I'm not gifted in this area, right? And that's okay. But you'll see the Lord eventually producing fruit in and through you when you exercise your gift. And even if you serve somewhere that you're not exactly gifted, just remember it's still beneficial for the church. You know, Sometimes I think we can get too me-focused. Remember that the gifts aren't about you. They're about the body. And the body being built up, you know, we think sometimes we get it backwards. Like, I should be serving to fulfill me, you know, and my gifts. And if I can't use my gifts, then, oh, you know, I'm upset or sad or offended. And it's like, oh, like we've got that backwards. Okay, you're here for the church to help the church grow. And that's the reality. Gifts aren't for you. They're given to you for the sake of others. We don't serve simply to get personal gratification, definitely not glory for ourselves, or CSER credit exclusively, right? We serve to bless and benefit others and to cause others to grow for the glory of God. So, that would be some advice on, on how you figure out where your gifts are at. But what about if I'm insecure about my gifts? Or if I'm unsure if I'm actually going to be a help to people? Uh, maybe I'm untested. I haven't really done much. Um, maybe I have some... As I look over at this person, and I think, man, I wish I was like them. I'm not like them. I can't be useful. Well, I want you to notice one more little phrase in verse 7 here. Paul says that you've been gifted according to the measure of the gift of Christ. End of verse 7. Do you see that? According to the measure of the gift of Christ. What does that mean? Well, this means that Christ has sovereignly determined... Two things, okay? He's determined what kind of gifts you should have and how much of it you should have, okay? So the kind of gifts you should have and how much of it you should have are both determined by Christ. Both determined by Christ. He's gifted you and limited you in his infinite wisdom. We should trust He knows what he's doing. Even if we're not completely sure what our gifts are. Right? A little bit insecure. Sometimes when we see others being extremely useful, we have what's been called gift envy. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) We wish that God had made us like others in the body who seem so useful to him while we ignore how he's gifted us. And we, make, and, and we don't make the most of our gifting, the way the, Lord's, the way the Lord's wired us and gifted us. 
Or we put pressure on ourselves to be just like someone else when God may not have given you those particular strengths. And this was exposed for me in HD when I was in seminary. I mean, I'm around all these other guys. They're gifted. They're smarter than me. More ministry savvy. And it's just, I was having to just like, it's like whack-a-mole in my heart with gift envy. It was just like, get down, get down, get down, get down. You know, and like every time I would hit one, another one would pop up. And But I'm saying it's a, it was a real it was a real struggle until the Lord helped me kind of get comfortable in my own skin with my own particular gifts and limitations. But imagine saying this to the Lord Jesus. Okay, imagine saying this to him. I don't like the grace you've given me. Can you imagine that? I would be more useful to you with a different set of gifts. May we never say that to the Lord to the Lord of the church, no less, who brought you up from the dead, Ephesians 2, and equipped you to serve exactly how he intends you to serve and be most useful to him with the particular set of giftings he's given you and limitations. That's arrogant to think that we would know how we would be most useful to the Lord. So may we never... Have that. May we fight it with all of our might to, to destroy that envy and to really get after the gifts that we have. So, one, I just alluded to this a second ago, but this little phrase also implies that God's limited us. Not just that He's given us, you know, given us gifts, but also that He's not given us other gifts, right? Christ hasn't given Pastor Farrell all the gifts, okay? And then given the rest of us just one gift, right? He's, he's limited us all by design. And that's because God has structured the church in such a way to be interdependent. Interdependent. And we're going to see next week that growth in the church happens when every single member is working together in the use of their gifts. In other words, you need me to teach, and I need you to do everything that you do. And all the various ways that you serve. If you aren't actively involved again, you're like the broken bone. It's so important to realize this. Inactivity, your inactivity, is actually hurting the body like an unset bone. There are people who are limited in our congregation and they need your gifts more fully to develop into the image of Christ. They need you. They don't have what you have. This is incredible motivation to serve. And it blows out sort of like, clergy laity distinction you know that's happened in so many churches where you just go and observe the show right that is the opposite of what paul is teaching here you are needed indispensable and necessary and that's by the design of christ now there is a reality that we are often in this stage less mature less useful in our gifts because we're just underdeveloped i mean that's a reality that we got to face as college students right and young adults And if that's you, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because next week, we're going to see that God has made incredible provision for this immaturity. He's made provision for this. He's anticipated it. He knows this is how it is. And he's made provision for it in the very body that we're in. We're going to see how God's gifted the leaders of the church to help you grow. To equip you to discover and better use your gifting. To help you grow up to maturity to stop being like a toddler spiritually and to use your, your gifts better. But we're going to get to that next week. I want to take the really short amount of time that we have left 
and look at this second half of our, of our thesis statement here, what we haven't covered yet. We've been given ministry grace by Christ, but that's not all Paul says. He says that this gifting is actually in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Look with me in verse 8. So Christ is given the gifts, verse 7. Therefore, it says, he draws an inference, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So what is this all about? Okay, He's quoting here from Psalm 68.18. 68.18. And he's essentially saying that this psalm was written ultimately about the event that he just spoke about which is the event of Christ pouring out gifts on all of us, on his church. You're saying, wait a minute. That was back in the Old Testament. That was before this event happened. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying it's prophetic, even though it's a psalm. According to to Paul, this psalm is functioning prophetically. It's looking to the ascension of Christ, Paul says, ultimately. Now, if we were to go back to the psalm, it would get really puzzling, okay? If we were to check it out, it would appear that the psalm isn't about Christ at all. But about Yahweh ascending to the mountain of Jerusalem. The psalm, what it's doing is it poetically tells the story of God's rescue of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. It tells about their conquest of Canaan, the next phase. And then, ultimately, the climax is Yahweh's ascent to Jerusalem to make it his dwelling place during the days of David. Right? That's the original reference to the phrase in our text. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. In this ascent to Jerusalem, Yahweh, through David, took prisoners of war. That's this host of captives. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing for the people, for the captives. They were were prisoners. They were his enemies. He took them captive. He conquered his enemies. It's a poetic reference to all the enemies of Israel conquered by David and the previous leaders of Israel. Then the psalm says, if you were to go back in Psalm 68, the psalm says, Yahweh receives gifts from men. What is that about? Well, if we pan out to the story of what he's describing here, Exodus, conquest, and then ascent to Jerusalem, the purpose of Yahweh ascending Jerusalem was to dwell there. Okay, was to live there, take up his abode in Jerusalem with the people of Israel, and he receives gifts for the building of the temple. This is a reference to the contributions that were made by Israel for the building of the temple in Solomon's day. So I want you to see the prophetic pattern here. First, there's an ascent of Yahweh to rule in victory over his enemies. Next, he receives gifts for the building of the temple, and then implied he builds the temple, right? The psalm itself ends, catch this, with an expectation of a future work of God that's cast in this same pattern. Okay? We tracking? So Paul here, <laughs> big jump, all right, a lot of stuff I didn't say. Paul here sees it fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't want us to miss the fact that Paul interprets the one who ascended as Jesus himself. He ascended in victory over his enemies, the hostile powers that were described in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, principalities and powers of the air. 
He triumphed over them by virtue of his death. That's how he did it. The new David, the new king, the Yahweh incarnate. How he triumphs over his enemies is through his death. And he ascends above everything in heaven to now dispense gifts to his people for the building of his temple. All right? And this is exactly how Paul goes on to explain the meaning of the quote. Look in verse 9. In saying he ascended, that's shorthand. He's grabbing the whole quote right there and, make, and, and explaining it. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Okay? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus, as the one who ascended in glory, almost done, guys. Okay, hang with me. Jesus is the one who ascended in glory to heaven over his enemies. He is the same one who first descended, okay, came down in death, that's the point, in death to accomplish the victory. Okay, so some people, side note, have interpreted this to mean he went into Hades and preached to Old Testament saints there and like liberated them out of, of Hades. I, that's obviously not right here in this text, all that. You know, that's inferred from other texts, and they read it in here. I don't think that's the most natural meaning of this text. I think what he's saying here is that he descended into the lower regions of the earth, namely the grave, okay, by virtue of his death. And you can write down chapter 1, verse 20 on that. You see the same pattern. He descends to death, ascends in glory and victory, okay? All right, but here's the point, all right? If all that's confusing to you, listen to this. The incredible point, especially in this context, is that just like Yahweh received gifts for the building of a physical temple, now the Lord Jesus gives gifts. He's giving them away for the building of his eschatological temple or the end time temple. The one that's here now that was prophesied is the climax of all of history where God dwells with and in his people. And the way that Paul quotes this text is he's saying that Jesus, his ascension and the giving of his gifts is the ultimate and climactic fulfillment of the pattern of Psalm 68. Okay? Now, why do I say all this? Because I want to underscore something glorious for you and I. When you exercise your gift, when you serve this body, when you lay your life down for the good of others, you are building the eschatological temple. You are fulfilling promises made to the saints millennia ago. You are participating in the most climactic pattern of all the Scripture. What an incredible, incredible and glorious mercy. You are profoundly privileged to serve. Right? Privilege to serve. That should, when someone thanks you for your service, the thing that should come out of your heart and from your mouth is it is a privilege. A privilege. Right? To be used however the sovereign Lord has determined. So get after it. Right? This is part of the new creation life. That we're talking about. You've been gifted by Christ to edify the body. Inactivity, sitting on the sidelines, is like being a broken femur. Your inactivity is detrimental to the body, to the temple. If you need practical steps on this, please come see us. We're going to be fleshing this out more and more in the next probably week. I'll probably just take one more week on it. But 
please come talk to us. Talk to any of the leaders here. We'll definitely help you get involved. And if you're newer here, again, the on-ramp, the most practical next step for you is to pursue church membership here at Timberlake. Make sure you align with us, okay, i.e. new members class. We don't, it's like, we open our underwear drawer, here's who we are, okay. Make sure you align with us and join us. That was a metaphor, by the way. Uh, (laughs) So make sure you align and so that you can fully immerse yourself here and be used in this most glorious way, all right?